Please note that in this podcast, I will be delving into quite significant spoilers for the Marvel Cinematic Universe, or more specifically, the first four Thor movies, Thor, Thor the Dark World, Thor Ragnarok, and Thor Love and Thunder, as well as Avengers Infinity War, Avengers Endgame, Guardians of the Galaxy, Captain America the Winter Soldier, Eternals, The Avengers, and the television series Daredevil, and What If. I would also like to mention that all of the opinions expressed in this podcast are my own. I would strongly urge you to listen to this complete podcast before forming your own opinion on the topic of this particular podcast. You must ask yourself, as I did once, what are you prepared to sacrifice for what you believe? These were the words of Malekith, the primary antagonist of Thor, The Dark World, the eighth movie in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, also known as the MCU. Malekith spoke this line in an alternate version of Frigga's death scene from Thor The Dark World. This line, although being deleted from the final version of the film, is one that I believe effectively summarizes what makes Malekith, in my opinion, one of the most well-developed, fascinating, and overall best villains in the entire MCU. What are you prepared to sacrifice for what you believe? Sacrifice and belief are some of the preeminent characteristics that make Malekith a great villain for Thor the Dark World. Even with this scene in which Malekith speaks this line deleted, the themes that this line summarizes still shine brightly in the final cut of Thor the Dark World. Because at his heart, Malekith is a scared little boy who desperately sought to return to a universe that was already gone. Through Malekith's story, we, as audience members, can learn about the lengths at which individuals will go to survive, the terrible cost of dehumanization, and the valuable lessons of leadership. Malkif has always stood out to me, personally, as one of my favorite villains in the MCU because he is so complex, layered, and multifaceted. And through this podcast, I hope to provide supportive and convincing reasoning for why Malekith is among the best villains of the MCU through the lenses of Malekith's compelling backstory and motivation, his symbolic relevance, and the ways in which Malekith pushed Thor to develop as a character, and Malekith's comeuppance, all of which will be underscored by the ideas of sacrifice and belief and how they pertain to Malekith's character arc. Ultimately, Malekith's story is the perversion of a hero and the real human sacrifices that he was willing to make in defense of what he believed. Malekith's story is a warning to all of us of who we can become if we sacrifice who we are for what we believe. His story is a reminder to us all that the ends should never justify the means. And there is no better place to start with Malekith than by delving into exactly what it is he believes and showcasing his compelling backstory and motivation. Perhaps the most important factor in what makes Malekith such a well-written villain is his compelling backstory and motivation. Thor the Dark World establishes Malekith as a character who truly believes himself to be the hero of his own story. Throughout the movie, Malekith believes that he is doing what he must do to save his people, the Dark Elves. The film establishes that Malekith was born millennia ago, before the birth of light. As stated in the Marvel Studios Visual Dictionary by Adam Bray, quote, 
The elves were once a peaceful race who lived on a world of serene beauty. When the present universe arose, one that thrives on light and a new set of atomic elements, its existence threatened their own. Their evil leader, Malekith, waits patiently for an event known as the Convergence, when once every 5,000 years, all nine realms blend one into another. Then he will unleash an awesome destructive force known as the Aether, which will convert reality into an endless night of dark matter and dark energy. End quote. Malekith seemingly grew up peacefully, but clearly became determined to eliminate the very light of the universe using the power of the ether, which was really the reality stone. Throughout the Dark World, Malekith did not seek to use the ether to eliminate the very light of the universe out of purely villainous tendencies. No, Malekith sought to warp the reality of the universe because the light and the new set of atomic elements that it was built upon threatened the very existence of Malekith's people, the Dark Elves. Nearly 30 minutes into Thor the Dark World, Malekith tells his close ally, Algrim, that his motivation is to, quote, put an end to this poisoned universe, end quote. Malekith did not mean this figuratively. The new composition of the universe after light was introduced into it is literally poisonous to the Dark Elves. Bray confirms as much when he states in his book that, quote, The state of the present universe is toxic to Dark Elves. The light, air, and the very matter essential to most life is poisonous to them. Dark Elves wear survival suits and masks to survive in what they refer to as the wretched new universe. Their masks resemble their appearance as it once was, before they were corroded by toxins. End quote. The Marvel Cinematic Universe Wiki's entry on the Dark Elves also reiterated this, stating that, quote, Light and matter are poisonous to them, corroding their appearance with time. Their masks maintain their life force, shielding them from the poisonous effects of the universe. Their masks also show evidence of enlarged eyes, possibly adopted for seeing in the darkness. End quote. Malekith was the leader of the Dark Elves, and as such, he had an obligation to protect his people. The very light of the universe was literally poisonous to dark elf physiology, requiring them to wear survival suits that we can see the dark elves constantly with throughout Thor the Dark World. Their bodies, in particular their eyes, were seemingly made for the universe that they were born into, one that did not require them to continually wear survival suits just to stay alive. Eternals revealed to MCU audiences that the Celestial known as Arishem the Judge deliberately made the callous decision to create the first sun and bring light into the universe, thereby effectively sacrificing the lives of the Dark Elves that this decision poisoned. This revelation from Eternals indicates that it was not a natural phenomenon that caused the Dark Elves to struggle with the poisonous effects that light had on them, but rather was the selfishness and malice of an individual Arishem the Judge. Arishem the Judge victimized the Dark Elves in order to birth his own new species. Tellingly, Arishem's goals throughout Eternals remain consistent with his insidious treatment of the Dark Elves. Arishem's ultimate plan in Eternals is to sacrifice all of the people on Earth so that a new Celestial 
Tiamat could be born. Arishim argues, however, that killing everyone on Earth to ensure the birth of Tiamat can be justified, since Tiamat will use the energy he absorbed from human beings to create a new galaxy, and thus, new life. This shrewd sacrifice that Arishim advocates for throughout Eternals is essentially the very same unethical calculation he made to poison the Dark Elves in exchange for allowing for the creation of humans and other new species that rely on light to survive. Arishim even reveals the critical role he plays in facilitating the poisoning and attempted extinction of the Dark Elves by admitting to Cersei the protagonist of Eternals, almost an hour into the film, that, quote, without us, our universe will fall into darkness, end quote. What Arishem neglects to mention to Cersei is that this would also ensure the continued survival of the Dark Elves. In his aftermentioned conversation with Algrim, the one in which he declared his intention to put an end to the poisonous universe, Malekith tells Algrim that, quote, I can barely remember a time before the light, end quote. This confirms that Malekith, at heart, is just a scared little boy. Malekith is an innocent boy who grew up in a world in which dark elves prospered. They were able to live their lives peacefully and roam the universe as they pleased. Malekith grew up in a world where he did not have to worry about breathing in any poisonous air. He did not have to worry about putting on an extensive survival suit every time he wished to take a stroll. Malekith grew up in a paradise for dark elves. And as that paradise vanished into the past, as Malekith began to grow up in a universe that rejected what once was in favor of what was to come, he found his own glorious purpose, to save his people. Malekith saw his purpose in the corroded bodies of his friends. Malekith saw his purpose in the boots that, as recounted by Bray, dark elves had to wear if they did not want their feet to be burned by the caustic matter of the new universe. And Malekith saw his purpose in himself, in the scared little boy that watched as his world, as his paradise, crumbled before him. Much like some of the other best villains of the MCU, such as Kingpin from the Daredevil television series, Malekith was deeply affected by the formative years of his childhood and, to some extent, seems to still see himself as the scared little boy who watched as his world fell to pieces. Malekith found his purpose in trying desperately to put those pieces back together. He dedicated himself to trying to save all of the Dark Elves. And the development of the Aether was one of the most impactful and significant actions that Malekith believed he could take to ensure the survival of his people. Around 32 minutes into Thor the Dark World, Odin, the King of Asgard, explains that, quote, there are relics that predate the universe itself. End quote. These relics that Odin references are the six Infinity Stones, as would be confirmed by Tanalir Tavan, also known as the Collector, in the film Guardians of the Galaxy, when he tells most of the titular heroes that, quote, before creation itself, there were six singularities. 
Then the universe exploded into existence, and the remnants of these systems were forged into concentrated ingots. Infinity stones. While talking to Thor, the protagonist of Thor the Dark World, and his love interest, Jane Foster, Odin reads from an ancient Asgardian text that was confirmed by both Bray and the Marvel Cinematic Universe wiki to be the Book of Yggdrasil. In this scene, Odin, referencing the Book of Yggdrasil, explains that, quote, Malekith made a weapon out of that darkness, and it was called the Aether, while the other relics often appear as stones. The Aether is fluid and ever-changing. It changes matter into dark matter. It seeks out host bodies, drawing strength from their life force. Malekith sought to use the Aether's power to return the universe to one of darkness. End quote. From what Odin read from the Book of Yggdrasil, it can be inferred that Malekith was able to transform the Reality Stone into the Aether, possibly so that he could more easily use it in his plan to eliminate the very light of the universe. According to this description of the Aether by Odin, it stands to reason that Malekith would have put himself in harm's way by exposing himself to the Aether. The Aether, from what Odin read from the Book of Yggdrasil, would have drawn strength from Malekith's own life force. This is seemingly confirmed about 53 minutes into Thor the Dark World, when Algrim, who had become the immensely powerful being known as Curse by this point in the film, told Malekith that he should, quote, heal. You will need your strength to reclaim the ether, end quote. Curse was seemingly telling Malekith to heal and to muster up as much strength as possible because he knew that the ether would draw its strength from Malekith's life force, thereby weakening him and putting him in danger. So, after all of the suffering he had endured in this new, poisonous universe, Malekith was willing to endure more pain and suffering by allowing his life force to be exploited by the ether. However, that is just because Malekith truly believes in his mission. He believes that he is truly the hero of his own story. And Malekith so deeply believed in the virtue of his plan to make the universe safe once again for all Dark Elves that he exposed himself to the dangerous power of the Aether. It should be noted that because Malekith is a Dark Elf who has lived for thousands of years and was seemingly powerful enough to effectively wield the power of an Infinity Stone, the relative risk that he took in wielding the Aether was likely not quite as great as the risks that humans without superpowers like Jane Foster had in exposing themselves to the Aether. Nevertheless, though, Malekith was still putting himself in harm's way by exposing himself to the raw power of the Aether, all because he believed so deeply in what he was doing to protect his people and to ensure that no more of his friends or family would have to suffer as they had in the past. Not only does Malekith deeply believe that he is doing what is best for the Dark Elves, so do his people. Around 29 minutes into Thor the Dark World, Malekith began to doubt the effectiveness of his efforts to save his people as he ventured out on Svartalheim, which, as recounted by Bray, was the home world of the Dark Elves and, quote, was laid waste by a war with King Bor and the Asgardians, end quote. As he ventured out on Svartalheim, 
Malekith picked up dust on the ground that may have been the remains of his own ships or his own dark elf soldiers, his own people, that King Boar of Asgard and his forces decimated in Malekith's first attempt to eliminate the very light of the universe and save his people. Malekith, with the dust of his previous failure in his hand, vocalized his own doubts about the, his effectiveness in protecting his people, saying, quote, Look upon my legacy, Algrim. I can barely remember a time before the light. End quote. Algrim put his hand on Malekith's shoulder and told him confidently that, quote, our survival will be your legacy. End quote. The fact that the individuals around Malekith, most apparently being his close ally, Algrim, believed him to be the hero that they needed to save their people injects an incredible amount of pathos into the journey of Malekith, since seemingly many of his people believe in him and follow him into battle because they see him as a hero. Even when Malekith began to doubt his own effectiveness, Algrim reassured Malekith that he would be remembered for the good work that he had put in to try to save the Dark Elves. Algrim did this because he believes in Malekith and wants him to succeed. The majority of Malekith's Dark Elf followers do not seem to see him as some tyrannical despot who justifies his own vile actions with the notion that what he does is for the greater good of the Dark Elves. No, they see him as a hero who's fighting for their survival and saving them from the brink of extinction, and Algrim's support of him is emblematic of this. One of the most telling interactions between Malekith and Algrim comes about 33 minutes into Thor the Dark World when Algrim allows himself to become the being known as Curse. Malekith tells him in this scene, quote, You will be the last of the cursed, end quote. Algrim responds with, quote, Let my life be sacrificed. It is no less than our people did, or you have done, end quote. At this, Malekith's eyes widen in an expression that I interpret as realization. Realization that he truly is the hero of his own story, leading a dedicated group of individuals who adamantly believe in the dream that he has for their people. In the junior novelization of Thor the Dark World, which was adapted by Michael Seglane, some minor changes were made. However, the story follows the plot of the cinematic source material very closely until its ninth and final chapter. In the sixth chapter of the book, on page 62, there is one scene that is adapted which I believe complements the content of the movie very nicely. In this scene, quote, Algrim approached Malekith, who was standing without his helmet, rasping as he breathed in the toxic air. My wife and I would sit here on the shore and watch our children play. I can still see the reflection of the waves on her face and feel the cool of the black wind, Malekith said as he kneeled down and sifted through black ash that covered the land. I will restore our world to its former splendor or I will breathe this poison air until it kills me. In a show of support, Algrim unhooked and removed his mask and breathed in the same toxic air. Malekith was impressed by his fellow Dark Elf's loyalty. End quote. The scene continues on to page 63, when Malekith tells Algrim, quote, Soon the Asgardians will know our pain as their own, Malekith said, looking out at dozens of Dark Elf Ark starships, all of which had crashed on this planet more than a thousand years ago, all of which served as a grim reminder of what the Dark Elves had lost 
and just who was responsible, end quote. This indicates that, despite his noble intentions and ideals, like many of the best MCU villains, Malekith crosses the line from hero to villain when his desire to do good becomes an excuse for him to perform bad deeds. Malekith undoubtedly is fighting for the survival of the Dark Elves, in the words of Mark Burrell in his Screen Rant article titled, The Ten Most Underrated MCU Villains Ranked an Almost Extinct People. However, what makes him an understandable and compelling villain rather than a superhero, is the way in which Malekith uses violent means to protect his people. His plan to eliminate the very light of the universe might very well alleviate the suffering of all the Dark Elves, but it would also usher in the suffering of other peoples and species. Malekith knows and understands the violent repercussions that his plan to return the universe to the darkness from which it originated will have. Because for him, it is not just about simply saving his people, it is also about making a statement. Throughout Thor the Dark World, Malekith seeks to show all of the people of the universe, particularly the Asgardian forces that actively fought against his efforts to save his people, what thousands of years of pain felt like for the Dark Elves. He sought to show them the consequences of their blissful ignorance to the plight of the Dark Elves. He sought to make a statement about the oppression felt by the Dark Elves. Nearly 30 minutes into Thor The Dark World, Malekith tells Algrim that, quote, the Asgardians will suffer as we have suffered, end quote. Malekith has every right to be frustrated with the situation of the Dark Elves. The universe he grew up in has since left him behind. His people need extensive protection with their armor, masks, and boots just to survive on a daily basis. And... Not only did King Bor and the Asgardian forces seemingly never help the Dark Elves readjust to a universe that was not made to accommodate them, but when Malekith eventually tried to return the universe to the darkness that once was, Bor and his Asgardian forces went to war with them. Nearly 33 minutes into Thor the Dark World, Odin even tells Jane Foster, with a hint of pride, that when his father, Bor, went to war with the Dark Elves, quote, he killed them all. End quote. The Dark Elves clearly deserved much more empathy and compassion than they received from those who had never experienced the level of suffering that the Dark Elves faced on a daily basis due to the poisonous composition of the new universe. However, Malekith's desire to make those that had ignored or ruthlessly attacked himself and his people feel what they had felt is ultimately what makes him a villain. I personally think that it is so tragic and compelling to have a villain who is both so close and so far away from being a hero. In his book, Bray articulates that, quote, Malekith is spiteful and malevolent. He could use the infinitely powerful ether to create an isolated safe haven for the Dark Elves to live, but instead he seeks to plunge the entire cosmos back into darkness and destroy all other life, end quote. With the knowledge that the Aether is really the reality stone, and that Malekith could use it in Thanos' words from 51 minutes into Avengers Infinity War to ensure that, quote, reality can be whatever I want, end quote, he could easily enact the plan that Bray describes of simply developing a safe haven for the Dark Elves. He could easily be a full-fledged hero who saved his people from extinction without having to hurt anyone. Think about that. Malekith could be a hero. However, 
his sheer spite for having been neglected by so many, even the universe itself, means that he will not rest until the Dark Elves can freely and safely roam the entire universe, not just some isolated safe haven. Malekith's spite consumed him and made him into a villain who longed for nothing more than to return to a time that had already passed. This spite that Malekith had, that in some ways overtook his desire to help others, was on full display during his final battle with Thor. When Malekith tells him, quote, Your universe was never meant to be. Your world and your family will be extinguished. End quote. The choice that Malekith consciously made to save his people at the expense of others, to devise an us-versus-them narrative instead of seeking to create a universe in which the Dark Elves could coexist with all other life forms, is what makes Malekith a villain. But the very fact that if Malekith just let go of his spite for being neglected, if he simply tried to move forward and create a new Dark Elf safe haven, instead of being so obsessed with moving back to the way that things once were, when the universe was comprised of darkness and was completely absent of light, he would be considered perhaps just as heroic as Thor. Is quite a complex idea. After all, what is a better villain than a hero who lost his way? The symbolic relevance of Malekith is one of the paramount reasons for why I personally believe that he is a great MCU villain. He may be a dark elf that has been alive for thousands of years, but is, there is something intrinsically human about what he represents. The treatment of Malekith and the dark elves as a whole by the Asgardian Empire seems to symbolize the treatment of many oppressed peoples in the real world. Asgard has already been established within the MCU as a symbol of imperialist expansionist empires. In fact, within Thor Ragnarok, the main villain, Hela, the bloodthirsty ch first child of Odin and the goddess of death, is shocked about 43 minutes into the movie to discover that she has largely faded into obscurity. While examining paintings depicting the supposed history of Asgard, Hela says, quote, has no one been taught our history? Look at these lies. Goblets and garden parties? Peace treaties? Odin, proud to have it, ashamed of how he got it. End quote. Hela then proceeded to destroy the mural of Asgard's supposed peaceful history, revealing a much more accurate mural depicting Asgard's history hidden beneath it, with images of herself fighting alongside Odin on the battlefields now visible. Hela told her ally, Scourge, that, quote, We were unstoppable. I was his weapon in the conquest that built Asgard's empire. One by one, the realms became ours. But then, simply because my ambition outgrew his, he banished me, caged me, locked me away like an animal. End quote. With these quotes from Hela in mind, it becomes clear that Asgard is very much a representation of an imperialist empire. Asgard, as Hela described, is an empire that was built around the conquest and death brought about by Odin and Hela. The fact that Odin apparently tried to hide so much of Asgard's bloody history from its people 
going as so far as to cover up a mural depicting Asgard's devastating conquests with another mural depicting a falsified version of Asgard's history in which it expanded across the Nine Realms through peaceful and benevolent means indicates the whitewashing strategies that Odin repeatedly utilized to cover up Asgard's dark history of violence and bloodshed. With the Dark Elves, the whitewashing strategy that Odin chose to employ is dehumanization. Throughout Thor the Dark World, Odin repeatedly refers to the Dark Elves not as his fellow neighbors in the universe, but rather demeaningly as, quote, these creatures, end quote. The King of Asgard, an empire with the resources and capacity to support the Dark Elves, looked at the individuals of a suffering people desperately searching for a way to survive and live their lives happily and freely, not as individuals, but as creatures. Even though Frigga, the queen of Asgard, was generally characterized in the MCU as a noble and kind individual, she too uses this choice word almost as a derogatory term when speaking to Malekith, saying to him about 47 minutes into Thor the Dark World, quote, Stand down, creature, and you may still survive this, end quote. This disgusting dehumanization by Odin and Frigga of the Dark Elves is representative of some of the ways that oppressors in our real world have treated struggling communities. In his Vox article titled The Dark Psychology of Dehumanization Explained, Brian Resnick states that, quote, at Stanford, Albert Bandura showed that when participants overhear an experimenter call another su study subject an animal, they're more likely to give that subject a painful shock. If you think of murder and torture as universally taboo, then dehumanization of the other is a psychological loophole that can justify them. End quote. These findings by Bandura indicate that dehumanization is really a psychological strategy that oppressors can use to excuse their heinous actions against struggling and minority communities. Findings such as these make it seem as if Odin was deliberately dehumanizing the Dark Elves at every chance he could so that all of his Asgardian allies would be more inclined to kill them like animals if given the chance. After all, Dehumanization has unfortunately been shown to be an effective tool in genocides and massacres throughout human history. Resnick specifically highlighted in his article how, throughout the Rwandan genocide, Hutu officials referred to the Tutsi people as cockroaches that needed to be cleared out. Resnick also explained how Northwestern University psychologist Noir Catelli recruited groups of generally white Americans and asked them to rate various groups of people, such as Americans, Arabs, Russians, Swedes, Muslims, and Australians, based on how evolved they are on a scale of 0 to 100. Some of the respondents in Catelli's studies, which have been become known as the Ascent of Man experiment, gave some of these groups scores that put them closer to animals. As recounted by Resnick, Catelli spoke about this dehumanization, saying, quote, We have this incredible capacity for cooperation. It's what makes us human in many ways. And yet, we have this capacity for othering, end quote. 
the Ascent of Man scale showcased that, on average, respondents rated Mexican immigrants as only being 83.7% evolved. Rated Arab people as only being 80.9% evolved. And rated Muslim people as only being 77.6% evolved. When one takes into account the fact that most of the participants in Resnick's Ascent of Man scale were white Americans, and the fact that, as was brought up in Daniel Immenwar's article in The Guardian titled, How the U.S. Has Hidden Its Empire, the United States Has Generally Been Considered an Empire by Some, it becomes readily apparent that minority groups that Resnick indicates have been targeted by Americans and disturbingly painted as enemies of the United States also happen to be the minority groups that are seemingly dehumanized the most by some American citizens. Resnick states in his article that much of the American policies and rhetoric that have targeted Muslim and Arab people and Mexican immigrants is seemingly one of the primary causes of the dehumanization of these groups of people. When his article was written on March 7, 2017, hate crimes against Muslim individuals were at their highest levels since 2001. Catelli and his collaborator, Emile Bruneau, surveyed 200 Muslim individuals who, on average, reported that they felt, quote, strongly disliked and dehumanized, end quote, by many non-Muslim Americans. As these studies show, dehumanization unfortunately can correlate with increased violence towards minority communities. Dehumanization has been a tool that has repeatedly been used by powerful hegemonies in an effort to justify their own lack of empathy for struggling minority communities. Whenever Odin refers to the Dark Elves as these creatures in Thor the Dark World, it continues a deliberate and painful strategy to erase the pain felt by an almost extinct people struggling to survive in a universe that seems at war with their very physiology. Tellingly, audiences of Thor the Dark World first learn about the Dark Elves in a whitewashed version of history told by Odin at the very beginning of the movie. It is only as more information is revealed about the Dark Elves throughout the rest of the movie that audiences realize the full extent of the whitewashing tactics employed by Odin to erase the pain felt by the Dark Elves. In this opening, Odin states that, quote, long before the birth of light, there was darkness. And from that darkness came the Dark Elves. Millennia ago, the most ruthless of their kind, Malekith, sought to transform our universe back into one of eternal night. Such evil was possible through the power of the ether, an ancient force of infinite destruction." End quote. From Odin's summary of Malekith's intentions, one would be led to assume that he merely wanted to eliminate the very light of the universe just because he is ruthless and evil. He left out very key and important details about what the Marvel Cinematic Universe wiki refers to as the first Dark Elf conflict. The fact that the Dark Elves were struggling to survive in a universe that was poisonous to them was a rather significant detail that Odin completely omitted from his retelling of the first Dark Elf conflict. The dehumanization and lack of empathy that Odin had for the Dark Elves, like all hate, was not something he was born with, but likely something he learned as he grew up. After all, 
Odin probably had never even seen a dark elf in the flesh prior to the events of Thor the Dark World, since it was his father, Bor, who fought Malekith's forces in the first dark elf conflict, and Odin was under the impression that all the dark elves were killed by Bor and his Asgardian forces prior to Malekith's hostile engagements with the forces of Asgard in Thor the Dark World. With that in mind, it was probably also Bor who taught Odin to dehumanize the Dark Elves. Given the fact that Bor was the king of Asgard during the first Dark Elf conflict, and given the high likelihood that he taught Odin to dehumanize the Dark Elves, as well as the fact that there is no evidence that Bor made any effort to help the Dark Elves adapt and survive to this new universe, it is quite likely that Bor was actually one of the primary instigators of his war with Malekith, the first Dark Elf conflict, due to his apparent unwillingness to support the Dark Elves and the high likelihood that he viewed the Dark Elves as being beneath him. Odin, referring to the Dark Elves as creatures instead of as individuals, may very well have been him simply just repeating the words that his father, Bor, told him as he grew up. Not only that, but Hela explained in her recounting of her conquest with Odin that, quote, one by one the realms became ours, end quote. This line of dialogue implies that Hela and Odin conquered all of the nine realms, including Svartalheim, the homeworld of the Dark Elves. This was confirmed in the Marvel Cinematic Universe Wiki's entry on the subjugation of the Nine Realms. So clearly, Asgard was interested in acquiring the land of Svartalheim. This entry in the Marvel Cinematic Universe Wiki also describes Odin as ascending to the throne of Asgard after his father, Bor, died in one of the wars that Asgard was engaged in, and states that Odin and Hela's subjugation of the Nine Realms was the very next event in MCU history following the first Dark Elf conflict. Since there are no known events that take place in between the first Dark Elf conflict and Odin and Hela's subjugation of the Nine Realms, it can probably be safely assumed that the war that Bor died in may have been a precursor to the subjugation of the Nine Realms. It is entirely possible, plausible even, that Odin inherited his mission to conquer all of the Nine Realms from Bor. If this was the case, then it would make sense that Bor had an ulterior motive for his involvement in the first Dark Elf conflict. Since we know that Asgard was interested in acquiring the land of Svartalheim from what we know of Odin and Hela's subjugation of the Nine Realms, is it possible that Bor was so intent on obliterating the Dark Elves so that he could take their land for himself? Is it possible that Asgard wanted the land of Svartalheim so badly that it attempted to wipe out an entire people to do so? Is it really that crazy to think that Asgard was fully content with letting the Dark Elves die out? And then, as soon as Malekith developed a way for the Dark Elves to survive once more and free themselves from the oppressive indifference shown to them by the Asgardian imperialists through the power of the Aether, Asgard finally intervened in the Dark Elves' struggles, but not to save them from the brink of extinction, but to quicken their deaths so that they could claim the realm of Svartalheim for themselves? Was Asgard responsible for the first Dark Elf conflict? Svartalheim may not have been devoid of light, and therefore was not entirely safe for the Dark Elves, since, as Bray articulated, Despite it being rich with dark matter, Svartalheim did receive 
some light from a dying star that was being consumed by a black hole. However, it was still Malekith's home, and the home of all the Dark Elves. Had Malekith succeeded in his plan to eliminate the very light of the universe, it is quite likely that many of the Dark Elves may have set up permanent homes on Svartalheim. The fact that Asgard's leaders stick to claim to Svartalheim so quickly after the Dark Elf forces have been defeated in the first Dark Elf conflict, well, at, at least quickly in the terms of the elongated lifespans of Asgardians and Dark Elves, suggests the potential ulterior motives that Asgard's leaders may have had in the first Dark Elf conflict. Regardless of who started the first Dark Elf conflict, the facts that cannot be debated are that Asgard was an expansionist empire, with leaders that dehumanized the Dark Elves and wanted their land for themselves. After waging an all-out war with the Dark Elves, Asgard covered up the origins of their conflict with the Dark Elves, omitting crucial facts and even completely fabricating certain information, such as the idea that Malekith sought to use the Aether for ambiguously evil and ruthless reasons. Nowhere in Odin's retelling of the first Dark Elf conflict, is there any reference to the suffering of the Dark Elves, or that Malekith wanted to use the Aether to save his people and to ensure their future happiness and prosperity? Odin's description of the events of the first Dark Elf conflict is skewed in, in such a way to make it seem as though Asgard was the savior of the universe that saved the universe from its would-be oppressors, a very powerful whitewashing strategy. Due to the sheer amount of whitewashing and rewriting of history that Asgard's leaders have engaged in, we may never know the full details on the origins of the first Dark Elf conflict. However, even if Malekith was the primary instigator of the first Dark Elf conflict, would he really be entirely to blame for the death and destruction that came with it? After all, as we have previously established, it is quite likely that Bor, who reigned over Asgard during the first Dark Elf conflict, dehumanized the Dark Elves. According to Resnick's article, Bruno explained how certain individuals and communities that are dehumanized may, in turn, dehumanize those who dehumanize them. This can occasionally even lead to violence. This research indicates that Malekith's decision to use the reality-bending ether to return the universe back into one of complete darkness, thereby endangering many other peoples who rely on light to survive, instead of simply using the ether to create a safe haven for the Dark Elves, may very well have been the result of the dehumanization and lack of empathy that he and his people received from powerful and thriving civilizations such as Asgard. The cost of whitewashing tactics that the leaders of Asgard employed to ignore the ugly truth about how they attained such desirable wealth and status is incredibly high. Rather tragically, throughout Thor the Dark World, the protagonist of the film, Thor himself, never truly learns the full extent of Malekith's motivations. All he learns is the whitewashed version of history about the Dark Elves, one that seemingly completely omits the negative effects that the atomic elements that compose the new universe have on Dark Elf physiology. When speaking to Odin and Jane Foster about the Dark Elves and about Malekith's motivations about 32 minutes into Thor the Dark World, and seemingly quoting the Book of Yggdrasil, Thor says, quote, Born of eternal night, the Dark Elves come to steal away the light. I know these stories. Mother told them to us as children. End quote. Tragically enough, never throughout the movie is Thor made aware of 
why Malekith wants to steal away the light, as he says. And tellingly, almost 55 minutes into Thor the Dark World, right after Odin refers to the Dark Elves as creatures, Thor explains his plans to defeat Malekith as follows, quote, When Malekith pulls the ether from Jane, it will be exposed and vulnerable, and I will destroy it and him, end quote. This, this line right there is the cost of dehumanization. Whether he knew it or not, Thor was seemingly subconsciously influenced by the insistence of Odin that the Dark Elves are creatures that are somehow lesser beings. Would Thor have been so willing to destroy Malekith if he knew of the true suffering of the Dark Elves? Would he have considered reasoning with Malekith if Thor knew that they essentially had the same goal, to protect their people? In his conversation with Odin, around 54 or 55 minutes into Thor the Dark World, Thor responds to Odin's claim that, quote, you overestimate the power of these creatures, end quote, with, quote, no, I value our people's lives, end quote. Almost 30 minutes into Thor the Dark World, Algrim urges Malekith to continue his quest with the words of, quote, our survival will be your legacy, end quote. Both Malekith and Thor were fighting for the lives of their respective peoples. Had Thor known this, perhaps he would have tried to concoct a plan that involved trying to reason with Malekith and find common ground with him before endeavoring to destroy him. However, the fact that Thor decided to try to destroy Malekith and the Aether without attempting to reach out to him and appeal to their similarities as individuals speaks to the dangerous power of whitewashing. The story of Malekith teaches us that whitewashing can cost lives. Rewriting history is a dangerous ordeal. Would the Asgardian and Dark Elf forces have been so willing to kill each other if whitewashing and dehumanization tactics were not used by the leaders of Asgard to erase the pain felt by the Dark Elves? These dehumanizing tactics that the leaders of Asgard utilized seemingly became so influential and widespread that in the events of the Guardians of the Galaxy film, about 58 minutes and 30 seconds into the movie, a dark elf can be seen in the Collector's Museum, locked up in a tank like an exotic creature. Think about this for a moment. A living dark elf was put on display in a museum as a collectible, someone who was viewed as a lesser being, an animal even. It is important to note that in Thor the Dark World, following the defeat of Malekith, Lady Sif and Volstagg, two of Thor's most trusted friends and some of Asgard's most prominent warriors, trusted the Collector enough to give him the Aether, which was really the reality stone for safekeeping, presumably on orders from the leadership of Asgard. As Bray recounts in his book, quote, Nowhere is a mining outpost built inside the severed head of an ancient celestial being. It is a lawless place that attracts criminals keen to mine rare celestial body parts, which are highly prized in the black markets across the galaxy. It is also home to the infamous collector, Tanalir Tavan, who has agreed to pay Gamora four billion units to procure the precious orb for his museum. End quote. About 33 minutes into Avengers Infinity War, Thor, when asked by Gamora why her father, the villainous Thanos, who was searching for all of the Infinity Stones, would travel to nowhere, Thor responded with, quote, 
because for years the Reality Stone's been safely stored there with a man called the Collector, end quote. To this, Peter Quill, also known as Star-Lord, a close ally of Gamora's, told Thor that, quote, if it's with the Collector, then it's not safe. Only an idiot would give that man a stone, end quote. To this, Thor responded with, quote, or a genius, end quote. So clearly, Lady Sif and Volstagg gave the Collector the ether, which was really the reality stone, with the authorization of the leaders of Asgard. Thor, who would eventually become the king of Asgard, even went as far to say that giving the Collector one of the six Infinity Stones was a stroke of genius. For the High Command of Asgard to have trusted the Collector so much to give him the Aether, one of the most powerful relics in the entire universe, with the apparent confidence that he would safeguard it in his collection, it is quite safe to assume that Asgard had previously interacted with the Collector. With that in mind, and knowing that many of the leaders of Asgard dehumanized the Dark Elves, it seems quite plausible that some of the denizens of Asgard's dehumanization of the Dark Elves may have encouraged the Collector to continue that cycle of dehumanization and essentially give him permission to cage at least one Dark Elf that we know of, encased in a tank, to be displayed and shown off like a creature at a zoo. Malekith was fighting for the safety, survival, happiness, but also the dignity and prosperity of the Dark Elves. Shortly after he failed... At least one Dark Elf was locked up in a museum, continuing the cycle of dehumanization that the whitewashing strategies of Odin and probably Boar had wrought. Although Malekith certainly could, have, could be classified as a villain for threatening the lives of all the species that relied on light to survive, like many of the best villains are able to do, he was also very much the hero of his own story. Malekith's plan to eliminate the very light of the universe, while flawed, certainly had its fair share of heroic attributes, not the least of which being that Malekith was seemingly standing up to Asgard, the literal representation of a whitewashing imperialist empire. Guardians of the Galaxy as a film did an excellent job, in my opinion, using subtle visual storytelling to convey the cost of Malekith's failure to eliminate the very light of the universe and find salvation for his people. Since Malekith was not able to restore the universe back into one of darkness, which would have ensured the survival of his people, dark elves were being inhumanely housed in tanks and stored as animals at least a year after Malekith's defeat, since, according to Avengers Endgame, the events of Thor the Dark World and Guardians of the Galaxy take place about a year apart in 2013 and 2014, respectively. This narrative of the dehumanization of the Dark Elves is reinforced in more recent MCU projects. In What If, Episode 2, What If T'Challa Became a Star-Lord, Dark Elves are depicted to be once again in cages in the Collector's home on Nowhere. This episode even expands upon the lengths at which the Collector will go to embrace disgusting forms of cultural appropriation when he proudly brandishes, quote, a dagger forged in dark matter, taken from the ruler of the Dark Elves. End quote. This episode also gives the Collector a very intriguing comeuppance when he is locked up in one of his very own display cages, and his enslaved servant, Karina, releases all of his prisoners, including multiple Dark Elves, who subsequently encroach upon and confront the Collector, as he fatalistically says, quote, O Karma, end quote. 
It is certainly fascinating to have the collector receive his comeuppance from the very individuals that he insidiously dehumanized, notably including dark elves. They had suffered for so long as a result of the neglect and dehumanization given to them by people such as the collector. This is what Malekith was fighting against. The dark elf in the collector's tank in 2014, roughly a year after Malekith's defeat, is a visual reminder that Malekith was fighting for his people. His defeat meant the continued suffering of his people, and it meant that they would continue to be neglected and dehumanized by the powerful forces of the new universe. Like some of the best villains, Malekith's death was not necessarily a positive outcome. Thor seemingly did not even really get to hear Malekith's story before he died, beyond Malekith's brief statement to Thor that, quote, your universe was never meant to be, end quote. The whitewashing, dehumanizing tactics employed by the leaders of Asgard made it so that even someone like Thor, who, as a member of the Avengers, generally fights for just causes, was made unaware of the true origins of the conflict between Asgard and the Dark Elf forces when he intervened in it. Nearly 56 minutes into Thor the Dark World, after Thor asks his father what makes him any different from Malekith, Odin responds by chuckling, and then saying that, quote, the difference, my son, is that I will win, end quote. It is said that the victors write the history books. Since Malekith lost both the first Dark Elf conflict and the second Dark Elf conflict, his story, his true story, tragically enough, may never be revealed to the majority of people living throughout the Nine Realms. Who would have expected, however, that the price of victory would also carry the price of truth with it? There is some very powerful symbolism in Thor the Dark World, however, that I believe effectively showcases how Malekith responded to the constant dehumanization and whitewashing of the Dark Elves. In his battles, Malekith utilized his fleet of arcs, which as recounted by Bray, were the names of the Dark Elf battleships that Malekith employed in his battles with the forces of Asgard, and that carry and deploy smaller Harrow fighters. Throughout Thor the Dark World, Malekith's arcs and Harrow fighters are shown to have the ability to become practically invisible to the eye. Even Heimdall, who, as recounted by Bray, was Asgard's guardian of the Bifrost, its gateway to practically all areas of the universe, who has supernatural eyesight that enables him to see almost everyone across the Nine Realms from his station at Asgard's observatory, tells Thor, after Malekith's brutal attack on Asgard, about 57 minutes into Thor the Dark World, that, quote, We face an enemy that is invisible even to me. What use is a guardian such as that, end quote. Asprey indicates, quote, The Dark Elves' cloaking devices keep their ship invisible to Heimdall until it is almost on top of him, end quote. The fact that the all-seeing guardian of Asgard could barely detect Malekith's invisible fleet of ships speaks to how most of the denizens of Asgard were undoubtedly oblivious to the presence of the Dark Elf forces until they wanted to make themselves known. Thor even tells Odin, about 55 minutes into Thor the Dark World, when speaking about the threat that Malekith poses to Asgard, that, quote, His ship could be over our heads right now, we would never even know it. End quote. 
Tellingly enough, about 53 minutes into Thor The Dark World, Malekith's arc flew above a supposedly peaceful Asgard with its advanced cloaking mechanisms without attracting any unwanted attention. At this time, Dark Elf leaders were literally plotting to destroy all of Asgard right above it without any Asgardians noticing. Algrim, who has become cursed by this point in the film, even tells Malekith in this scene, quote, When you wake, we will kill them all. End quote. The Dark Elf military strategists being able to make themselves invisible to the eyes of the, their Asgardian targets not only is a very useful tactical advantage in their military engagements with the forces of Asgard, but it is also a very potent, symbolic representation of the consequences of imperialism and the fascinating statement that Malekith wanted to make by waging war on Asgard. After all, it was Asgard's leaders who wanted to make the Dark Elves invisible. It was Asgard's leaders who, through their whitewashing, sought to make invisible the sympathetic origins of the Dark Elves' conflict with Asgard. It was Asgard's leaders who wanted to make invisible the plight and suffering of the Dark Elf people. It was Asgard's leaders who sought to make invisible the notion that Asgard refused to support an almost extinct, struggling people from a land that they were interested in acquiring as a territory. It was Asgard's leaders who wanted to make the Dark Elves invisible. And they succeeded in making the Dark Elves invisible. So much so that Malekith was able to launch a devastating surprise attack on Asgard due to the, due to the very advanced cloaking mechanisms that his arcs and harrow fighters were equipped with that made them invisible to their targets. Malekith was somewhat able to exploit the desire of Odin and likely his predecessor Bor as well for the Dark Elves to disappear in his attack strategies. Had Malekith's arcs and harrow fighters not been equipped with such advanced cloaking mechanisms, Heimdall would likely have been able to see them long before they reached Asgard, giving Odin and his forces ample time to ready Asgard's defenses. Yet, because Malekith and his Dark Elf forces were able to become invisible, they were able to effectively deal a devastating blow to the Asgardian Empire from which it arguably never recovered from. Odin and his like-minded confidants sought to make the Dark Elves invisible, reduced to the confines of ambiguous children's stories, with Thor, the Prince of Asgard, and the future King of Asgard, who would likely have been thoroughly educated on much of the history of Asgard, apparently only recognizing the history of the Dark Elves from ambiguous and whitewashed children's stories that his mother told to him when he was in his youth, as he indicated about 32 minutes into Thor the Dark World. To me... Malekith's ships having the ability to become invisible reads to me as a statement by Malekith about how all of the suffering and the torment endured by the Dark Elves was made invisible to the rest of the universe due to the sheer level of whitewashing and dehumanization that Asgard used to erase their pain. His attack on Asgard, which was made possible by the invisibility and cloaking mechanisms featured in his arcs and harrow fighters, represents the efforts by Odin, Bor, and others to ignore the plight of the Dark Elves finally coming back to bite them. Tellingly, as soon as they had entered Asgard, Malekith had his arc and his harrow fighters reveal themselves and lower their cloaking mechanisms, presumably so that Asgard 
with all of its statues memorializing its war warlord leaders and murals whitewashing the truth about Asgard's history could finally, truly see them for the first time. Malekith only became a villain because he was not truly seen by the supposed heroes of Thor the Dark World, most notably being Odin. And in one of the most intense action sequences in Thor the Dark World, Malekith and his people can finally be seen, but only in a bloodbath of his own making. The first words that Malekith ever speaks to Thor in the MCU come just over an hour and 15 minutes into Thor the Dark World, when Malekith tells Thor, quote, Look at me, end quote. These three words obviously hold a great deal of importance as, as they were the first words that the antagonist of Thor the Dark World spoke to the protagonist. However, they also hold a great deal of importance because for as long as the Dark Elves had lived, a leader of Asgard had never truly seen, had never truly looked at them. For thousands of years, the leaders of Asgard turned a blind eye to the plight and suffering of the Dark Elves, not bearing to truly look at them. The leaders of Asgard had refused to look at the Dark Elves, not bearing to see what their indifference and oppression had done to them. However, when Malekith finally had a prince of Asgard at his feet, shortly before he acquired the Aether and the power to save his people, Malekith forced Thor to bear witness to what Asgard's machinations had done to him, what they had done to the Dark Elves, what equipment, attire, and masks they were now forced to constantly wear in order to keep themselves alive. Malekith just wanted to be seen, to, to have the suffering and the pain of the Dark Elves be put on display and not ignored or brushed aside as it had been for thousands of years. Malekith just wanted a leader of Asgard to see him as he reclaimed the Aether from Jane Foster to see what their lack of empathy towards all of the Dark Elves had forced him to turn to, a rather parasitic Infinity Stone that drew strength from Malekith's own life force, putting his own life in danger. Malekith just wanted a leader of Asgard to finally see him. After having lost his family, his wife and children, if Thor the Dark World Jr. novelization's inferred recountment of their deaths is to be believed, to the indifference of an Asgardian empire primarily interested in acquiring more territory and gold, it is no small wonder that Malekith just wanted to be seen, to, to finally be looked at. With Thor, Prince of Asgard, at his feet, Malekith finally would be able to be looked at by the high and mighty leaders of Asgard. Look at me. I personally cannot think of the first words that any other MCU antagonist has spoken to the protagonist as being more impactful, meaningful, and layered than the first three words that Malekith spoke to Thor. Look at me. Malekith is also one of the greatest villains of the MCU because his story is quintessential in the character development of Thor. The character of Malekith and what he represents allowed Thor to learn very valuable lessons of leadership that he would later put to good use as the king of Asgard. Throughout his many battles with Asgard, Malekith maintained the conviction that the ends justify the means. 
towards the end of the first Dark Elf conflict in a battle that the Marvel Cinematic Universe wiki aptly refers to as the, the first battle of Svartalheim, nearly three minutes into Thor the Dark World, when Malekith was at a tactical disadvantage and was being defeated by Bor and his Asgardian forces, he chose to drop his fleet of arcs from the sky. Malekith, dropping his arcs from the skies of Svartalheim, was a tactic designed to lay waste to the forces of Asgard while he and some of his confidants made their escape. However, Malekith dropping his arcs on the forces of Asgard also killed many of the Dark Elf forces that they were fighting, not to mention any of the Dark Elf personnel that may have been manning the arcs. While retreating with Algrim, Malekith explained his decision to drop his arcs on the battlefield below by saying, quote, Their deaths will mean our survival. This war is far from over. End quote. Malekith, whose entire motivation revolved around saving his people, chose to sacrifice many of them so that he could fight to save his people another day. He fervently believed that the ends justify the means, and that his goal of saving his people from the poisonous composition of the new universe would justify his willingness to essentially kill many of his people in order to escape to enact this plan. Many centuries later, Malekith began to second-guess his willingness to sacrifice so many Dark Elf lives in order to save those that are left, picking up the dust of his fallen soldiers and warships and saying, about 29 minutes into Thor the Dark World, quote, Look upon my legacy, Algrim. I can barely remember a time before the light. End quote. However, Algrim immediately responded to Malekith by reassuring him of the lessons that Malekith had taught him many centuries earlier, that the ends justify the means, telling him, quote, Our survival will be your legacy. End quote. Later, Nearly 34 minutes into Thor the Dark World, when Algrim was making the decision to become the being known as Curse, the last of the cursed powerhouse soldiers that Malekith tended to deploy in his battles with the forces of Asgard, Algrim tells Malekith, quote, Let my life be sacrificed. It is no less than our people did, or you have done. End quote. Clearly, with the support of Algrim, Malekith came to the conclusion that sacrifices had to be made in order to ensure victory. Malekith became convinced that it was necessary to sacrifice some of his own people to save the rest. His leadership style revolved around putting his plans before the lives of his own soldiers. For Malekith, strong, tactical, strategic maneuvers came first and foremost, and the lives of his Dark Elf forces, the very people that he had pledged himself to defending, were not quite as strategically important. While Malekith's ultimate plan certainly would benefit the well-being of all of the surviving Dark Elves in the long run, there would be a real human cost. Dark Elf lives would be lost. However, the way that Malekith, and Algrim for that matter, led is through their intense conviction that the ends do justify the means, and that all of the Dark Elf lives that they will lose will have been necessary to save the Dark Elf people from complete and total annihilation. While he may have occasionally had his doubts about the choices he made on the battlefield, Malekith consistently believed throughout his battles with the forces of Asgard that the ends justify the means. Malekith believed, somewhat like Alexander Pierce, one of the main villains from Captain America the Winter Soldier, that the lives of the many outweighed the lives of the few. Ironically enough, 
Alexander Pierce has a line of dialogue about 44 minutes into Captain America the Winter Soldier that fits the motivations of Nalkith quite nicely, that being, quote, We knew that despite all the diplomacy and the handshaking and the rhetoric, that to build a really better world sometimes means having to tear the old one down, end quote. As Bray pointed out, Malekith could use the reality-bending powers of the Aether to construct a safe haven for all of the Dark Elves. However, that would be one safe haven in a universe of poison. For a people that spend much of their time traveling across the universe in Ark battleships, a single stationary safe haven for the Dark Elves would not be entirely effective in ensuring their long-lasting prosperity. Somewhat like Alexander Pierce, Malekith understood that to build a really better universe for the Dark Elves ultimately meant tearing down the current poisonous one. However, in his efforts to tear down the poisonous universe and create a new one in its wake, Malekith was willing not only to sacrifice many people that rely on light to survive, but also some of his very own Dark Elf forces that he, so that he could escape to enact this plan. While Malekith's generally good-natured ideals backed up his plans, his strategies were backed up purely by the unemotional logistics of his plans, meaning that the deaths of dozens of Dark Elves could be warranted if it meant that the rest could live to survive another day. Malekith's desire to emerge victorious in his battles with Boar, Odin, and Thor outweighed his desire to save as many Dark Elves as possible. What makes this so thematically important is that it demonstrates, ironically enough, that the strategic mindset of Malekith, that which believes that the ends justify the means, was not all that different from that of Odin. There is a very telling conversation between Thor and Odin about 55 minutes into Thor the Dark World, when Thor raises concerns that Malekith could attack and destroy Asgard since his Ark had an effective cloaking mechanism. Odin responded to Thor's concerns about Malekith in acting a surprise attack on Asgard by telling him, quote, If and when he comes, his men will fall on 10,000 Asgardian blades. End quote. Thor instantly raises the valid concern to Odin of, quote, And how many of our men shall fall on theirs? End quote. Odin, revealing his own ends justify the means mentality, responded to Thor with, Quote, as many as are needed. Ah, we will fight till the last Asgardian breath, till the last drop of Asgardian blood. End quote. In arguably one of the best lines of Thor the Dark World, Thor asked Odin, quote, Then how are you different from Malekith? End quote. Odin chuckled, seemingly mocking his son's question, before answering with, quote, The difference, my son, is that I will win, end quote. Odin believed that victory at all costs is the only true way to look at the world. He, much like Malekith, believed that it was better to sacrifice his forces than to accept defeat. Odin accepted the casualties of war as necessary losses to achieve his end goals, usually of maintaining his rule in Asgard's hegemony across the Nine Realms. In fact, nearly 36 minutes into Thor the Dark World, Odin's own wife, Frigga, asked her renegade son, Loki, about his destructive tendencies, asking him, quote, What of the lives you took on Earth? End quote. Loki quickly responded with, quote, A mere handful compared to the number that Odin has taken himself. End quote. 
This indicates that Odin's desire to kill and sacrifice lives to achieve his ultimate goals was not just isolated to the second Dark Elf conflict. Much like Malekith, it demonstrates that Odin fervently believed that the ends justify the means. A very significant part of Thor's character arc throughout the first three Thor movies is his journey to discovering what makes a great leader. Odin and Malekith's rather similar leadership styles serve to further that character arc. Towards the beginning of the very first Thor movie, about 12 minutes in, after a few frost giants broke into Asgard's weapons vault, seeking to steal the casket of ancient winters that Odin had seized from their home in the, the realm known as Jotunheim many years ago, Thor told Odin that this attempted robbery was proof that Laufey, king of the frost giants, had broken the truce that Odin had brokered with him. When Odin asked Thor how he would handle this situation if he was the king of Asgard, Thor responded with, quote, March into Jotunheim as you once did. Teach them a lesson. Break their spirits so they'll never dare to cross our borders again. End quote. Thor very clearly believed that at this point in the story, that the best way to effectively rule over the Asgardian Empire was to beat all of its neighbors and territories into submission with as much force as necessary. Thor was willing to kill many frost giants in order to ensure that peace prevailed throughout the Nine Realms because he, much like Odin and Malekith before him, initially believed that the ends justified the means. In fact, nearly seven minutes into the first Thor movie, shortly after Odin explained to Thor and Loki, who were children at this point in the movie, how he defeated Laufey's forces and brought peace to the universe, Thor declared that, quote, When I'm king, I'll hunt the monsters down and slay them all, just as you did, father. End quote. This highlights how, when he was an impressionable child, listening to Odin's stories of war, Thor became convinced that the ends justify the means. His desire to kill all of the frost giants in order to ensure peace throughout the Nine Realms is a very apparent example of Thor's initial ends justify the means mentality. When Thor tried to actually enact this plan of traveling to Jotunheim to use force to beat the Frost Giants into submission, about 20 minutes into the first Thor movie, Laufey warned Thor of the diplomatic consequences that such an act of violence would yield. Laufey, with Loki's help, convinced Thor to return to Asgard before they started a diplomatic incident. However, as Thor began to leave Jotunheim, a Frost Giant identified by the Marvel Cinematic Universe wiki as Hailstrom, mocked Thor, saying, quote, Run back home, little princess, end quote. This led Thor to pummel Hailstrom with Mjolnir, purely out of spite from being mocked, thereby starting a conflict between Asgard and Jotunheim, purely because Thor was spiteful for being mocked by Hailstrom. There was no strategic advantage to Thor letting his anger, thirst for vengeance, and spite consume him in this moment. In fact, Thor's actions in this instance put Asgard at such a strategic disadvantage that roughly one hour and 33 minutes into the first Thor movie, Laffy was standing over Odin, the king of Asgard, with a knife made of ice. Interestingly enough, the spite and aggressiveness showcased by Thor in this instance was quite similar to that demonstrated by Malekith throughout Thor the Dark World. As previously established, Malekith's spite, warranted as it may have been, drove many of his villainous actions throughout the film. Nearly 46 minutes into Thor the Dark World, Malekith takes one of the Dark Elves' signature black hole grenades and tosses it onto the throne of Asgard, destroying it. 
When taken at face value, there may initially appear to be no real strategic advantage that Malekith could have hoped to gain from this action. I suppose one could argue that it was a symbolic gesture, designed to demonstrate that the Dark Elf forces had infiltrated the heart of Asgard. One could possibly refer to the fact that seconds after the throne of Asgard is destroyed in the movie, an Asgardian guard in Loki's cell block can be heard saying, quote, The throne of Asgard is destroyed to the king! End quote. So perhaps, Malekith wanted to use the destruction of the throne of Asgard as a way to lure most of the forces of Asgard to the throne room so that he would not face much resistance in his quest to reclaim the ether from Jane Foster, who was located in a different part of Asgard. Throughout the movie, it is established that Malekith can somewhat sense the ether's power and is able, usually able to pinpoint the general area in which the ether is located. So it does make sense that perhaps Malekith just destroyed the throne of Asgard so that he could strategically lure the forces of Asgard to one region of Asgard and away from the region in which Jane Foster, who had accidentally absorbed the ether, was, was located. However, when I watch the scene of Malekith using a black hole grenade to decimate the throne of Asgard, the scene reads to me as a prime indicator of Malekith's pure spite. Malekith, defacing the throne of Asgard, showcases the resentfulness that he rightfully felt towards all of the individuals who sat upon it and actively dehumanized and displaced the Dark Elves. Malekith's act of destroying the throne of Asgard strikes me as an emotionally driven decision that the otherwise tactically driven Dark Elf military strategist made as a demonstration of his hatred towards Asgard for doing nothing as Dark Elves struggled and died. So, in a way, Malekith's spitefulness and his ends justify the means mentality somewhat resemble the mindset of Thor from the beginning of the first Thor movie. What is so fascinating about Thor's conflict with Malekith is that he is kind of fighting himself. Part of Malekith represents who Thor was before he developed into a more responsible and humble heir to the Asgardian throne. Thor's battles with Malekith represent his fights with some of the worst instincts of himself. In the first Thor movie, about 27 minutes and 30 seconds into the film, Thor justifies his battle with the Frost Giants in Jotunheim by telling Odin, quote, I was protecting my home. End quote. In actuality, however, Thor was only defending his pride by getting into a battle with the Frost Giants after he felt insulted by Laufey and Hailstrom. Thor justified his actions that he took out of spite by claiming that they were done in defense of his home of Asgard. While Malekith, ironically enough, arguably had more of a reason to defend the prospective home that he hoped to create for himself and his fellow Dark Elves with the reality-bending powers of the Aether, some of the actions that he took along the way, such as destroying the throne of Asgard and orchestrating the death of Frigga, the queen of Asgard, were seemingly primarily motivated by his spite towards the rulers of Asgard. When Malekith arrived in Greenwich, England, the focal point of the Convergence, at which he would be able to easily eliminate the light from each one of the Nine Realms, in the climax of Thor the Dark World, and began to reshape the universe to eliminate all of the light and the poisonous elements that came with it, he even seemed to take some concentration away from restoring his old universe to confront Thor and somewhat mock his apparent failure to save his world nearly an hour and 36 minutes into Thor the Dark World, telling him, quote, Darkness returns as guardian. Have you come to witness the end of your universe? End quote. One of the main lessons that Thor learned in his very first movie in the MCU was to become more humble and open-minded. 
After Thor started a conflict between Asgard and the frost giants of Jotunheim, Odin banished him to Earth and ensured that he could not pick up his magical hammer, Mjolnir, until he had grown to be more humble and truly worthy of it. On Earth, without constant access to the great power that Mjolnir constantly provided him, Thor did indeed learn to become more humble and, and thereby worthy of Mjolnir once again. On Earth, stripped of his power and status as a prince of Asgard, Thor, who previously justified his brash and arrogant actions, such as starting a conflict with Laufey and, the Fro and his Frost Giant's forces by claiming that he engaged in such actions to protect his home of Asgard, learned to admit his faults. When Loki, who himself was spiteful towards Thor for belittling him through his constantly enlarging ego and reputation that was built up through his well-known escapades, sent the Destroyer, a powerful weapon of Asgard, to ensure that Thor could not return to a Asgard by destroying everything in Puente Antiguo, a town in New Mexico, Thor, still without immediate access to his powers, confronted the Destroyer. Almost an hour and 26 minutes into the first Thor movie, Thor spoke to Loki through the Destroyer, telling him, quote, Brother, wh whatever I have done to wrong you, whatever I have done to lead you to do this, I am truly sorry. But these people are innocent. But these people are innocent. Taking their lives will gain you nothing. So take mine and end this. End quote. In this moment, Thor admitted that he was responsible for the spitefulness that Loki felt toward him that led him to send the Destroyer on a warpath through Puente Antiguo. Thor apologized for his prideful actions of the past and made no effort to justify any of the brash and arrogant acts that he had committed over the years. Thor's willingness to allow Loki to claim his life if it meant that all of the people of Puente Antiguo would be unharmed, demonstrated a selflessness and humility that enabled him to once again become worthy of Mjolnir and return to Asgard. Upon Thor's return to Asgard, he actively sought to stop Loki from destroying all of the frost giants in Jotunheim. Thor, who had once vowed to hunt all of the frost giants, or monsters as he had called them, and kill them, fought his own brother to ensure the survival of the Frost Giants. This action demonstrates the significant character development that Thor underwent throughout his first film in the MCU. Loki even notices this about an hour and 36 minutes into the movie, asking Thor, quote, What is this newfound love for the Frost Giants? You could have killed them all with your bare hands. End quote. In response, Thor did not seek to justify his prior acts of violence but simply responded with the short but meaningful phrase of, quote, I've changed, end quote. In his first film, Thor went from being an arrogant and brash prince of Asgard, who was all too eager to become king, to being a much more humble and responsible individual. That is why I believe it was a very intelligent creative choice to make the main villain of Thor's second solo outing in the MCU be someone who somewhat represents Thor, prior to his character development in the first Thor movie. Malekith is a character who hurt and killed others and justified his violent actions by claiming that they were done in defense of the prospective home that he was trying to build for the Dark Elves. 
when he dropped his arcs and harrow fighters on so many dark elf forces, he instantly justified his action to himself by claiming that it was done so that he could live to enact his plan of creating a universe safe for dark elves to roam happily and freely. Shrewd tactics such as this definitely resemble some of the actions that Thor took at the beginning of his story in the first movie, most notably being his attack on Jotunheim that ended up leaving his close friend Fandral injured in Asgard on the precipice of all-out war, which he instantly justified to his father by saying, quote, I was protecting my home, end quote. Malekith, Thor, and Odin as well, all initially believed that the ends justified the means. They believed that the well-being of some of their people could be sacrificed so that their homes could be protected. While Thor learns in the first Thor film that the ends do not justify the means, so much so that he no longer endorses killing all the frost giants to bring peace and stability to the Nine Realms, Odin and Malekith remain, for the most part, committed to their ends justify the means mentality throughout the Thor trilogy. The spite that Thor had at the beginning of his first movie towards anyone that made him feel lesser, can be found very clearly in Malekith. Malekith destroyed the throne of Asgard and had its queen, Frigga, killed, primarily out of spite. Spite was obviously partially to blame for Thor's outburst towards Hailstrom and Jotunheim that ignited a conflict between Asgard and the Frost Giants. However, spite is also one of the primary motivators for Odin's hatred of the Dark Elves throughout Thor the Dark World. Odin expressed an interest in killing the Dark Elves that seemingly stemmed from his desire for revenge after Malekith and Curse killed his wife, Frigga. This leads to a situation in which Thor is not only fighting a villain who exemplifies some of the worst attributes that he had just overcome in his first Thor film, but also a situation in which the audience can recognize that many of these attributes that Thor acquired from a young age were the result of him being raised by Odin. Some could even potentially argue that Odin is just as much of a villain in Thor The Dark World as Malekith. It is true that Odin did continually caution Thor against his selfish and arrogant tendencies in the first Thor movie. However, Odin has consistently showcased his ends justify the means mentality throughout the MCU, even when he was trying to teach Thor to be less arrogant and selfish. In order to teach Thor lessons of selflessness and kindness, Odin banished Thor from Asgard. Of course, this act ended up working out for Thor as his time on Earth humbled him. However, this could easily have not been the case. Without his power, Thor could have died unglamorously on Earth and never been able to lift Mjolnir ever again. If Thor had died on Earth... Jane Foster did, in fact, accidentally hit him with a car a few times, so despite his above-average strength, he was vulnerable to the same threats that all human beings have to deal with on a daily basis. He may never have been able to return to Asgard. He eventually was able to become worthy of Mjolnir again and make it back to Asgard, but the sheer number of threats and dangers that Thor encountered on Earth demonstrates how Odin definitely possesses an ends-justify-the-means mentality it probably would have been better for Odin sim to simply hammer home the lessons of selflessness and kindness into Thor from the safety of Asgard. 
However, this is the same Odin who, according to Hela's story to Scourge, decided that after years of conquest and bloodshed, he would prefer to be a peaceful monarch, and when his own daughter Hela, who he had raised to be the vicious arm of Asgard's expansionist principles, was resistant to this sudden change in how Asgard would be ruled, Odin banished her from Asgard to a prison-like area from which she could never escape for as long as he lived. Odin believed that the ends of ensuring peace and prosperity throughout the Nine Realms justified the means of banishing his very own daughter from her home for as long as he lived, never giving her the chance to see her own father ever again. And, as one would see about 21 minutes into Thor Ragnarok, Odin waited until he was on death's door to tell Thor and Loki about Hela and the threat that she posed to Asgard and the Nine Realms. I will give Odin credit for being very kind to both Thor and Loki in his final moments, telling them both that he loves them. He clearly cared about their emotional well-being, which I do think is commendable. However, I would also argue that it was rather selfish of Odin to ensure that Hela was locked away just for as long as he was alive. Once Odin was gone, he would leave it to someone else to deal with the sins of his past that had led Hela down the path that she traveled. And Odin, over his many centuries of life, chose not to disclose any information about Hela to Thor or Loki until he was about to die, leaving them completely unprepared to face a bloodthirsty foe who held a legitimate right to the throne of Asgard. So, even though Odin did try to caution Thor against his arrogant and selfish tendencies, Odin clearly had his own wealth of arrogance and selfishness, which was exacerbated by his firm belief that the ends justified the means. Both Odin and Malekith ruled over the respective civilizations with this end-justifies-the-means mentality. Both of them were vocal about their willingness to sacrifice their own people to save their homes. For Odin, he declared to Thor that he would sacrifice as many Asgardian lives as are needed in order to preserve the safety of the place of Asgard. For Malekith, he told Algrim, after dropping the Dark Elf arcs and harrow fighters on dozens of his people, that the Dark Elf lives that he sacrificed would mean the survival of the Dark Elves, indicating his belief that if he lived to fight another day, Malekith would eventually be able to build his prospective paradise for the Dark Elves. Both Odin and Malekith believed that, to be effective leaders, they had to make moral sacrifices. Both Odin and Malekith, despite all their differences, believed that to be a leader meant making shrewd calculations about who will live and who will die to save their homes, or, in Malekith's case, the prospective home that he was trying to build for the Dark Elves. Thor realizes that very fact when he asks Odin, quote, How are you different from Malekith? End quote. Thor learns that being a leader comes with making challenging decisions that frequently involve sacrifices. He realizes, to some extent, that Odin chose to sacrifice some of his own morality in order to make Asgard a the prosperous, wealthy civilization that it became. Thor realized that Malekith and Odin were both willing to sacrifice their own people in order to win wars and protect their homes. All of this culminates at the end of Thor The Dark World with Thor, who, at the beginning of his first movie, was all too eager to become the next king of Asgard, declaring, nearly an hour and forty minutes into the film, that, quote, I cannot be king of Asgard. I will protect Asgard and all the realms with my last and every breath, but I cannot do so from that chair. Loki, for all his grave imbalance, understood rule as I know I never will. 
the brutality, the sacrifice, it changes you. I'd rather be a good man than a great king. End quote. I'd rather be a good man than a great king. These words perfectly capture the ways in which Malekith, as an antagonist and foil to Thor, was able to push him to develop. It took Thor to recognize the similarities in Malekith and Odin's leadership styles to realize that being an expansionist, imperialist, as guardian king would compromise the morality that he so deeply cherished. Both Malekith and Odin embrace leadership styles that revolve around the idea that the ends justify the means. Understanding the ways in which Odin and Malekith set their own forces up to die in their efforts to win wars did not sit well with Thor. He vowed to make sure that he would put being a good man before being a good king, demonstrating how far he had come from his first film. Thor did not believe that the ends justified the means by this point in the story. When Odin vowed to fight the Dark Elf forces until the bitter end, Thor was severely discomforted by the ugly means through which Odin was willing to ensure the ends of peace throughout the Nine Realms. Despite having been willing to sacrifice all of the Frost Giants and the well-being and potentially even the lives of his friends to ensure peace throughout the Nine Realms towards the beginning of his first movie, Thor gained a more grounded, humble perspective during his time on Earth that thought caused him to rethink this mentality. However, I believe that it was Malekith's similarities to Odin that truly caused Thor to abandon his initial belief that the ends justified the means. And it definitely was Malekith's similarities to Odin that caused Thor to realize that being a leader means making sacrifices. Thor saw how the trappings of power corrupted the morality of Malekith and Odin, making them justify their dubious means with their more righteous ends. This all led Thor to refuse to inherit the throne of Asgard at the end of Thor the Dark World. But Malekith's influence on Thor's character arc did not even end there. In Thor Ragnarok, once Hela was freed from her imprisonment, she sought to assert her rightful claim to the throne of Asgard. As queen, Hela made Asgard once again into an expansionist, imperialist state that endorsed public executions. In order to topple her despotic rule, Thor was left with little choice but to take the throne of Asgard, not because he wanted to, but because he had a responsibility to his people to replace Hela's tyrannical reign with his more just rule. When Hela confronted Thor in Asgard's throne room, nearly an hour and 42 minutes into Thor Ragnarok, she told him, quote, Odin and I drowned entire civilizations in blood and tears. Where do you think all this gold came from? And then, one day, he decided to become a benevolent king, to foster peace, to protect life, to have you, end quote. Thor, who, through his interactions with Malekith and his father in Thor the Dark World, had come to realize how much of the wealth and prosperity that Odin brought to Asgard was done by making hideous moral compromises, responded to Hela reasonably, telling her, quote, I understand why you're angry, and you are my sister and technically have a claim to the throne. And believe me, I would love for someone else to rule, but it can't be you. You're just the worst, end quote. Thor had finally moved beyond his selfish ambitions. He had established at the end of Thor the Dark World that he had no desire to claim the throne of Asgard. However, because Thor had become more responsible, his action of claiming the throne of Asgard was not one that he justified by saying that he was protecting his people, but an action that he took out of a genuine desire to protect his people from the bloody reign of Hela. 
As Thor clashed with Hela, he had Heimdall and his other allies attempt to evacuate the people of Asgard to protect them from the ruthlessness of Hela. However, Hela was able to use her great power to prevent the people of Asgard from leaving. As Thor says nearly an hour and 52 minutes into Thor Ragnarok, quote, The longer Hela's on Asgard, the more powerful she grows. She'll hunt us down. We need to stop her here and now. End quote. As Thor analyzed the situation to decide what the best way to defeat Hela was, he remembered Ragnarok, the prophesied fall of Asgard. Surtur, who, as recounted by Bray, was a vengeful fire demon that ruled over the volcanic realm of Muspelheim and sought to take revenge against Odin, attacking his realm, was believed to be the one who would bring about Ragnarok by placing his crown in the mystical eternal flame. Upon remembering this, Thor looked at the Asgardian people that Heimdall was trying to evacuate off of Asgard and declared, quote, Asgard's not a place, it's a people. Loki, this was never about stopping Ragnarok. This was about causing Ragnarok. Surtur's crown, the vault, is the only way, end quote. With that, Thor ushered Loki to go place Surtur's crown into the eternal flame, thereby summoning Surtur and causing Ragnarok, the destruction of Asgard. When Valkyrie, Thor's ally that he recruited from Sakaar, on which she is known as Scrapper 142, voiced her hatred about the prophecy of Ragnarok. Thor responded with, quote, We have no choice. Surtur destroys Asgard, he destroys Hela so that our people may live. End quote. This may have been the best way to conclude Thor's character arc throughout his trilogy. In Thor the Dark World, Thor seemingly recognized how Malekith was willing to sacrifice dozens of his own people in order to build his prospective home. Thor also recognized how Odin was willing to sacrifice potentially every Asgardian warrior in order to protect Asgard. Both of them believed that the ends justify the means, and were of the mind that moral sacrifices had to be made to save their homes. Their willingness to make these shrewd moral sacrifices, as well as Thor's progression, from the belief that the ends justify the means, led Thor to reject his claim to the Asgardian throne at the end of Thor the Dark World, out of concern that being a leader would involve making these sacrifices. However, when forced into a position in which Thor felt like he had to take up the Asgardian throne in order to save his people from the diabolical reign of Hela, Thor learned from both Malekith and Odin. Both Malekith and Odin were willing to sacrifice their people in order to save their homes. However, only Thor was willing to sacrifice his home in order to save his people. Thor was the only one who recognized that Asgard is not a place, it's a people. While Malekith wanted to build his home so that his people could thrive, he killed not only Asgard's warriors, but his own people as well in his pursuit to build this paradise for Dark Elves. If Thor had never confronted Malekith, it is quite unlikely that he ever would have truly learned these imperative lessons of leadership that he did prior to his battle with Hela and his decision to unleash Surtur on Asgard and cause Ragnarok. After all, at the beginning of Thor the Dark World, Thor was still acting as Odin's tool of his imperialist agenda, traveling across the Nine Realms and dispelling any disorder. In fact, roughly ten minutes into Thor the Dark World, Odin asked Thor, quote, Is Vanaheim secure? End quote. Thor quickly responds with, quote, As are Nornheim and Raya. End quote. Odin went on to inform Thor that, quote, For the first time since Bifrost was destroyed, the Nine Realms are at peace. They're well reminded of our strength, and you have earned their respect and my gratitude. End quote. 
Granted, it does appear as if Thor was defending Vanaheim, Nornheim, and Raya from the Marauders, which Bray describes as alien pirates that, quote, ruthlessly raid settlements in large groups, often working across multiple star systems until settling on a profitable world to set up as a comfortable base of operations, end quote. However, Odin's unique choice of vocabulary in asking Thor if Vanaheim was secure does seem to have the telling connotation of a belonging that needs to be stabilized or reasserted. While Thor may have just been defending Vanaheim, Nornheim, and Raya from the Marauders just because he views himself as a heroic Avenger who seeks to keep innocent lives safe, it would not be surprising if Odin had an ulterior motive for sending Thor to dispel any disorder in areas like Vanaheim, which, according to Hela's history lesson from Thor Ragnarok, was conquered by herself and Odin many years ago. Odin's choice vocabulary of securing chaotic areas under Asgard's protection since, according to the Marvel Cinematic Universe wiki, even though Nornheim and Raya may technically be worlds outside of the Nine Realms, they are still apparently under Asgard's protection. And reminding the Nine Realms of the strength of Asgard does make it seem as if Odin was primarily concerned about maintaining Asgard's imperialistic rule across the Nine Realms. It was only until Malekith entered Thor's life by attacking his home and bringing about the death of his mother that Thor realized that the villain that he was facing possessed a leadership style that was very reminiscent to that of Odin. This led Thor to put being a good man before being a great king so that when it came to defending his home or protecting his people, Thor chose to sacrifice his home in order to save his people. If Thor had never encountered Malekith, realized how similar he was of a leader when compared to Odin, and abandoned their ends-justify-the-means leadership style, perhaps Thor would have fought Hela to the last Asgardian breath and the last drop of Asgardian blood. Perhaps he would have prioritized defeating Hela and taking back Asgard over saving his people. It should be noted that it was a vision of Odin, about an hour and 47 minutes into Thor Ragnarok, who told Thor that, quote, Asgard is not a place, never was. This could be Asgard. Asgard is where our people stand. Even now, right now, those people need your help. End quote. Clearly, following his death, Odin embraced the philosophy that protecting Asgard's people was more important than defending the location of Asgard. However, about 55 minutes into Thor The Dark World, in one of the last scenes in the MCU that the audience sees of the real Odin, before his death scene in Thor Ragnarok, Odin declared that he was willing to sacrifice as many Asgardian warriors as are needed in order to protect the place of Asgard, declaring his intention to, quote, fight till the last Asgardian breath, till the last drop of Asgardian blood, end quote. At first glance, Odin's characterization in Thor Ragnarok may seem a bit inconsistent with what came before it. I would argue that perhaps Odin's time on Earth without his power humbled him, much like Thor during his time on Earth. After all, when Thor and Loki talk to Odin right before he dies, it becomes apparent that he has seemingly let go of all his resentment towards Loki about 20 minutes into Thor Ragnarok, despite the fact that Loki had banished him to Earth and that they did not exactly have a very cooperative relationship in Thor The Dark World. Nearly six minutes into Thor the Dark World, Odin even told Loki, after he tried and failed to conquer the Earth, that, quote, Frigga is the only reason you're still alive, end quote, indicating that Odin would have been perfectly content with executing Loki, his own son, in this instance. And yet, 
About 21 minutes and 30 seconds into Thor Ragnarok, Odin reassured Loki of his love for him. The only really logical reason for Odin's sudden change in character would probably be his banishment to Earth. Without all of his stolen gold and supernatural powers, with no one to obey him unquestionably, and without the authority to conquer entire civilizations on a whim, Odin seemingly became more humble and reflective on his past mistakes. Also, it should be noted that throughout the Thor trilogy, Odin has seemingly done a better job at importing wisdom to Thor than using that same wisdom himself. After all, Roughly 28 minutes into the first Thor movie, after Thor attacked Hailstrom and the other frost giants, he declared to Odin that, quote, The Jodens must learn to fear me just as they once feared you. End quote. Odin responded to him with, quote, That's pride and vanity talking, not leadership. End quote. This was a quite important lesson about leadership that Odin imparted onto Thor. It even helped Thor develop into the great leader of Asgard that he became when the Asgardian people were threatened by the wrath of Hela. Thor even acknowledged the importance of this lesson that Odin was trying to teach him while he was stranded on Earth, nearly an hour and eight minutes into the first Thor film, when he told Eric Selvig, a close work associate of Jane Foster's, that, quote, My father was trying to teach me something, but I was too stupid to see it. End quote. However, was it not pride and vanity? that caused Odin to eliminate all traces of his firstborn child, Hela, from Asgard's history, so that all of Asgard would view Odin as a benevolent king that attained his wealth and power through peaceful means? Was it not pride and vanity that caused Odin to not disclose to his sons any information about his bloodthirsty banished daughter until he was moments away from dying so that he would not have to confront the sins of his past? Hela even pointed out Odin's whitewashing tactics through which he altered Asgard's history to ensure that no future generations of Asgard would think of him as a villain, telling Thor about an hour and 41 minutes into Thor Ragnarok that, quote, it seems our father's solution to every problem was to cover it up, end quote. The bottom line is that even though it is true that it was Odin who told Thor that the people of Asgard are more important than the place of Asgard, Owen has proven that he does not always practice what he preaches. This is presumably a result of Odin wanting Thor to be better than he was, even telling Thor nearly an hour and 49 minutes into Thor Ragnarok when Thor claimed that he was not as strong as Odin that, quote, you're stronger, end quote. Regardless of what advice Odin gave Thor post-mortem, the fact of the matter is that while he was alive, Odin embraced an ends-justify-the-means mentality, and it was Thor, not Odin, who made the decision to put being a good man before being a great king. Even though Odin told Thor that Asgard was never a place, deep down, Thor had already known this. Thor had already criticized Odin in Thor the Dark World for putting the glory of Asgard before the well-being of the Asgardian people themselves. Thor had already vowed to put being a good man before being a great king, indicating that he would not abide by the mentality that the ends justify the means. When Thor arrived in Asgard about an hour and 38 minutes into Thor Ragnarok on the Commodore, a ship that he stole belonging to the Grand Master, the ruler of Sakaar, and the brother of the Collector, according to his entry on the Marvel Cinematic Universe wiki. Valkyrie used the Commodore systems to locate many of the Asgardian people taking refuge in the mountains of Asgard and to determine that Hela was coming for them. 
Thor used this information on the spot to put together a comprehensive plan which he told his allies, Valkyrie and Bruce Banner, that being to, quote, drop me off at the palace and I'll draw her away, end quote. When Valkyrie raised her concern that confronting Hela alone would get Thor killed, Thor responded with, quote, the people trapped down there are all that matters. While I'm dealing with Hela, I need you two to help get everyone off Asgard, end quote. This moment preceded Thor's conversation with Odin's spirit, regardless of whether he knew it. Deep down, Thor had already realized that Asgard was not a place, but rather a people. It was not Odin who convinced Thor of this. Thor had already learned this, as exemplified by how his plan, unlike those devised by Malekith or Odin from Thor the Dark World, prioritized the survival of the people over the defeat of Hela. Had he really wanted to defeat Hela, Thor probably would have had Valkyrie and Bruce Banner accompany him in his battle against her, but instead he sent them to go save his people while he distracted Hela long enough for his people to escape Asgard. Thor was not willing to let his people die just so that he could defeat Hela. This is because Thor, unlike Malekith and Odin when he was king of Asgard, knew that the ends do not justify the means. However, without Malekith's villainy and ruthlessness, and Malekith's critical role in the death of Thor's mother, Thor may have never learned this valuable lesson of leadership. Without Malekith, Thor probably would not have unleashed Surtur on Asgard, thereby causing Ragnarok, and Hela would have been able to kill countless Asgardians and conquer the entire universe. Without Malekith, Thor probably would have tried to take back Asgard from Hela, regardless of the Asgardian casualties that might result, only to inevitably lose both of them in the end. Without Malekith, Thor's character arc would not have been nearly as fleshed out and engaging as it ended up being. Without Malekith, it is quite likely that Thor's character development would have ended when the first Thor movie ended. Malekith was the perfect foil for Thor because he represented both Thor's past and his future. Malekith represented many of the negative qualities that Thor had just overcome in his first film, a perpetual reminder of how spiteful Thor used to be and a warning of who Thor could become once again if he was not careful. Malekith also represented the style of leadership that Thor needed to avoid in his third film, Thor Ragnarok demonstrating to the audience that the ends do not justify the means. The fact that Malekith was so tightly interwoven into Thor's journey throughout the MCU is a very impressive feat, and, in my opinion, not a feat that every MCU villain has accomplished. Malekith, through his shrewd, cold, and calculating leadership, pushed Thor to become a better person, with Thor embracing a more empathic and compassionate leadership style. Because of Malekith, Thor no longer justified his actions by falsely claiming that they were done in defense of his people, but instead took actions out of a genuine desire to help his people. Thor became a king who listened to his people, demonstrating how far he had come from the beginning of his, the first Thor film, even asking his friend, Meek, about two hours into Thor the Ragnarok, where he would recommend taking the entire populace of Asgard after Surtur destroyed their home. Avengers Endgame and Thor Love and Thunder round out Thor's character arc to becoming a noble leader nicely. In the original Thor trilogy, Thor was continually content with letting enemies such as Malekith and Hela die without much of a second thought. Thor contemplates his needless brutality, however, when he reflects on his gruesome decapitation of Thanos in a conversation with Frigga, 
about an hour and 30 minutes into Avengers Endgame, saying, quote, his head was over there and his body over there. I mean, what was the point? I was too late, end quote. In Thor Love and Thunder, Thor has to come to terms with the ways in which he uses excess violence to overcompensate for his own insecurities. MCU audiences witness this almost immediately in Thor Love and Thunder, when King Yakon entrusts Thor with defending his sacred temple from enemies that Yakon fears will desecrate it. In fighting Yakon's enemies, Thor attacks them with such ferocity that he ends up inadvertently destroying the temple in the process. Thor is portrayed as a well-meaning god at the beginning of Thor Love and Thunder, but also one who is quite detached from the lives, hopes, aspirations, and wishes of mortals. In keeping with this theme, most of the gods featured in Thor Love and Thunder were wearing very vibrant and colorful costumes, whereas the antagonist, Gore the God Butcher, someone who is dedicated to trying to expose the, the gods as the frauds he believes them to be, his shadow realm is completely black and white. I felt that this was a really interesting artistic combination of some of the storylines from the previous Thor movies. The three Thor villains who all want to expose the gods for their hypocrisy, neglect, arrogance, dehumanization, and imperialism, those being Laufey, Malekith, and Gore the God Butcher, all have very drab and dark color palettes. The only two main Thor villains who are colorful, Loki and Hela, are those who are products of the Asgardian Empire, and individuals who intend to expand Asgard's imperial reach across the universe. Loki, in the Avengers after all, wanted to conquer Earth and hoped that Odin would be proud of him for doing so. I was wondering why this might be the case, and I felt that perhaps the subtext is that the gods, like Loki and Hela, view themselves as being very elaborate, extravagant, and colorful characters, while people like Laufey, Malekith, and Gore the God Butcher are much darker and more grounded characters to reflect their desires to have the gods realize that the real world isn't as colorful and fun as they would like it to be, but in fact, much darker and grimmer. However, unlike Laufey and Malekith, Thor actually comes around to seeing Gore the God Butcher's perspective, when faced with Zeus, the god that Thor modeled himself after, Thor seems disgusted by the ridiculous overcompensating antics that Zeus engages in when he elaborately shows off his thunderbolt. Zeus could have been using his colorful talents to improve the lives of so many, but instead he opted to just indulge himself in personal desires. Thor empathizes with Gore the God Butcher's perspective in an important moment in the movie when Thor announces at Olympus that maybe the gods have, in fact, lost their way. By adopting Gore the God Butcher's daughter, Love, Thor essentially broke the cycle of neglect that started with Laufey abandoning Loki as a baby in the barren wasteland. When Odin adopted Loki, however, it was primarily so that Loki could essentially be used as a bargaining chip between Asgard and Jotunheim. Thor adopted Love, however, to demonstrate to Gore the God Butcher that he would devote his life to trying to ensure that the gods are there for ordinary people like Gore the God Butcher and Love. Odin and Zeus may have had no interest in helping the ordinary people of the universe, 
but Thor would ensure that he would be the divine intervention that people like Gore the God Butcher needed in their times of existential crisis. Thor's character arc throughout his trilogy in the Infinity Saga largely revolved around whether he would become the King of Asgard and what type of king he would become. And seeing as Thor eventually passed his role as leader of Asgard to Valkyrie at the conclusion of Avengers Endgame, it is safe to assume that his character arc from the first three Thor movies about becoming the responsible, worthy, committed leader that Asgard deserves has been completed. With that in mind, one may quickly realize that without Malekith's intervention, Thor may have followed in Odin's footsteps, becoming a leader primarily focused on increasing the glory and wealth of Asgard. Malekith's commitment to saving his people in the long run by sacrificing many of them in the short run taught Thor the valuable lesson of leadership that the ends do not justify the means. Thor became a committed leader, dedicated to the survival of his people above all else, even showcasing his own willingness to sacrifice Asgard to Surtur just so that his people might live, all because of Malekith. Malekith caused Thor to rethink the type of leader that Odin was molding him into. Malekith created the Thor that we know today. I can't think of too many other MCU villains who have had such a major significant impact on the way that their protagonists think. Not only was Malekith able to fit thematically into Thor the Dark World, but he also fit thematically into Thor's entire journey and character arc throughout the Thor trilogy. And from Malekith's influence on Thor's character arc, we, as audience members, can learn not only how to be great kings, but also how to be good people. In the season one finale of Daredevil, aptly titled Daredevil, Wilson Fisk, otherwise known as the Kingpin, has a very telling monologue. The monologue begins about 34 minutes into the episode, when Kingpin says out loud that, quote, I'm not a religious man, but I've read bits and pieces over the years. Curiosity more than faith. But this one story, there was a man. He was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was set upon by men of ill intent. They stripped the traveler of his clothes, they beat him, and they left him bleeding in the dirt. And a priest happened by, saw the traveler, but he moved to the other side of the road and continued on. And then a Levite, a religious functionary, he came to the place, saw the dying traveler, but he too moved to the other side of the road, passed him by. But then came a man from Samaria, a Samaritan, a good man. He saw the traveler bleeding in the road, and he stopped to aid him without thinking of the circumstance or the difficulty it might bring him. The Samaritan tended to the traveler's wounds, applying oil and wine, and he carried him to an inn, gave him all the money he had for the owner to take care of the traveler. As the Samaritan, he continued on his journey. He did this simply because the traveler was his neighbor. He loved his city and all the people in it. I always thought that I was the Samaritan in that story. It's funny, isn't it? How even the best of men can be deceived by their true nature. End quote. Kingpin continued his analogy by declaring, quote, It means I'm not the Samaritan. That I'm not the priest or the Levite. That I am the ill intent, 
who set upon the traveler on a road that he should not have been on. End quote. While Malekif does not necessarily get this kind of reflective monologue at the end of his story in the MCU, I do believe that he has his own realization of his ill intent, even if it is a little bit more subtle than the Kingpin's. Malekith dies almost an hour and 38 minutes into Thor the Dark World, when his very own arc comes crashing down upon him. Malekith and his arc were both teleported due to the weakened barriers between the realms created by the Convergence to the plains of Svartalheim, on which Malekith had sacrificed dozens of his very own Dark Elf forces in a spiteful attempt to decimate the forces of Asgard and so that he could escape to build his dream of a safe universe for the Dark Elves another day. As his very own arc crashes down upon him on the same grounds on which he willingly crashed other arcs down upon his own Dark Elf forces, Malekith's eyes widen in an expression that I read not only as fear, but also as realization. Realization that he had been a proponent of the belief that the ends justified the means, that he had been willing to sacrifice countless lives for what he believed. Realization that he had been motivated by a desire to save lives, but ended up taking so many more than he planned to. Realization that Malekith wanted to save the Dark Elf people, but had ended up killing so many of them to do so. Realization that he was the ill intent. How do I know that Malekith was thinking about what he believed when he died? Because of his scream. Just before Malekith dies, we hear him scream in a somewhat unrecognizable, high-pitched tone. Malekith's final scream, his final exclamation into the world, demonstrates his final realizations. Malekith's scream is very high-pitched in this last scream, rather uncharacteristic for the Dark Elf military commander who had spoken in a low tone throughout most of the film. In fact, about 48 minutes into Thor the Dark World, Malekith also screams, but in this instance, Malekith's scream is deep, booming, and threatening, as he proclaimed Frigga to be a witch. It's a far cry from Malekith's final, high-pitched scream of vulnerability, desperation, and understanding. So why, then, was Malekith's final scream just before he dies so much more high-pitched than his other lines of dialogue in Thor the Dark World, including the other time that he screamed? I believe that it was to evoke the idea that I presented at the very beginning of this podcast. That, deep down, Malekith is nothing more than a scared little boy. So it only makes sense that his final scream should be emblematic of the child within. Throughout Thor the Dark World, the writers built Malekith up as a villain, desperate to return to the years of his childhood. Malekith's primary motivation throughout the film is to restore the universe to how it was when he was a little boy, with Dark Elves existing in peace and harmony, not having to worry about essentially constantly breathing in chemicals toxic to Dark Elves. This final childlike scream of Malekith is meant to represent what Malekith believed that the Dark Elves could return to the universe of his childhood when the Dark Elves roamed peacefully. The Ark crashing down upon Malekith is meant to represent what he sacrificed in order to achieve his paradise of a universe, that being the deaths of dozens of Dark Elves, not to mention the deaths of millions of individuals across the universe that rely on light to survive. 
because Malekith had crashed Arks down upon his own Dark Elf forces in an effort to escape capture by Asgard and to build his paradise. I believe that this was Malekith's moment of understanding that he was the ill intent, who had believed so vehemently in the survival of Dark Elves that he sacrificed many of them in order to realize their survival. I believe that this was Malekith's realization that he was a hero who became a villain. I believe that this was Malekith's character arc, realizing that the ends do not justify the means because if one is willing to sacrifice the lives of others in order to save lives in the long run, they do not generally fit the description of a superhero. Just like Kingpin, who had thrown his city into chaos in a misguided attempt to save his city, Malekith had killed his own people in an attempt to save his people. Surrounded by the wreckage of the remains of other arcs and the dark elves that he had sacrificed under them, Malekith met his death in precisely the same way that he killed. The graveyard of arcs in this scene is a visual reminder of how Malekith's ends justify the means mentality, a mindset that was intended to lead to the survival and the prosperity of the dark elf people, only led to death and destruction. In his pursuit to create a universe designed to sustain the Dark Elves, Malekith had killed dozens of them. Malekith had been willing to sacrifice anything for what he believed, but he ended up sacrificing the very thing he believed in. <laughs>